I'm going to share something with you. This has been so, so this is going to be cathartic for me because I've struggled with this ever since I've been saved. And so I'm going to talk this through and make myself feel better. And you just get to listen, I guess. But I've never been able to reconcile the, the law and grace, you know, exactly the balance there. I mean, if the, if the law is no longer relevant to a, to a new covenant believer's life, then why in the world is it in my Bible? Wouldn't it be easier and cheaper just to print the New Testament and we don't have to worry about all the other stuff? And what did Jesus say about that? Might shock you what Jesus said about that. And if, and if the law is relevant in my life, then on what scale? What is, it, what is it that I have to do? Tell me what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And so uh, what does that entail? So I want to work through this. And the title of my message today is Those Who Practice Lawlessness. Those Who Practice Lawlessness. And the reading today is out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14 and 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, I'll give you a chance to find it in your Bible since we don't have it on the overhead. And when you find it, let's stand for the reading of the word. Amen. Father, we just thank you and we just ask you, Lord, to help us and work through these, these, these really, really important theological issues and also to teach us. And may this word dwell richly in our hearts and may it bring forth fruit by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Verse 13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who have practiced lawlessness. May God add his blessing in the reading of the word you may be seen. Those are kind of sobering words, are they not? So he's not talking about lukewarm Christians that are like, you know, what do you call them, the CEOs, Christmas, Easter, and, 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 and whatever. You know, they just come once in a while. Nominal Christians, you would call them. Christians in name only call themselves Christians, but they don't know anything about the Bible. He's not talking about those. He's talking about people that are really, really fanatical, passionate. Casting out demons is a pretty much of a deep, deep, deep spiritual, uh, you know, it requires a deep spiritual understanding. These, these Christians are really, really people that are deep into the word. And he says to them, he says, I don't know you. This is kind of, this is kind of frightening, isn't it? I mean, if you, don't, if you don't really understand the words here, what's he saying here exactly? Well, I want to delve into that a little bit. I want to talk about the broad path versus the narrow path. Who gets into heaven? This is what he's talking about. Who gets into heaven? The narrow gate, it says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, is, is the path that leads to that. So, so, so the troubling thing about this passage is, is if your theology is the atonement gospel, that's now in vogue. The atonement gospel didn't exist in the church of Jesus Christ until about World War II. And then World War II in the 40s, right after the war, I suppose there were so many soldiers coming back from war and they had so many things that they had done in the, in the name of war that perhaps they, they dealt with deep. You know, PTSD doesn't have much to do with what was done to you. It has to do with what you did to someone else. That's a, that's a psychological reality. Those are the people that struggle with PTSD. And maybe they needed cleansing, and maybe they needed that, that redemptive thing, and that became a big dominant kind of a theology 
But, but Jesus never taught that it was just about the atonement. It's not just about getting into heaven. Being saved then, sozo is the word there. To, the, the Greek word sozo means to be repaired and be fixed. It doesn't mean just, about, just, just to get into heaven. And somewhere along there, it became only about that. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one has a born again experience, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So how many people get to this point and how they get there can vary greatly. And I have found something that's pretty staggering, but a lot, I don't know about you, but a lot of people don't, don't, get, don't have the born again experience. They don't have the born again experience in church. They have it somewhere else. They have it. Roger got saved. He grew up in the Methodist church. And, and he got saved on a tractor one day. He didn't even understand what the heck salvation was until he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and up until that point, he was just religious. And so he got radically saved driving a tractor one day out in the field. I mean, I've talked to people that have gotten saved in all kinds of places. Dr. Francis Collins is a pretty interesting guy. He's the chief scientist on the Genome Project. These guys did an amazing job. They took all the DNA, human DNA, and they decoded it and classified it, and, and they, they advanced science. It's one of the great breakthroughs in our era, scientific breakthroughs, where they can examine your gene structure, and they can tell you what, for example, if you have cancer, they can tell you what particular uh, uh, treatment you respond to the best because of your gene structure. It's a brilliant, he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientist. And he was a complete atheist when he was in college. Even after he graduated from college, he was an atheist. But he decided if he was going to be a medical scientist, that's what he wanted to go into, is he wanted to, be, he wanted to explore medical you know, remedies for things, that he needed to practice medicine for a little while. And he said that's when the truth smacked him in the face. He had, a young, he had an older a woman there that he was a cancer patient that he was treating and she was dying. And he had never really dealt with death much or thought about death much in his academic career. And so he went in to check on her one day and she sat, he sat down and she began to explain to him why she had no fear of death. And he said she really did not fear death. It was obvious. Psychologically, any psychologist could give her a short interview until she had no fear of death. It was, it was apparent. And so she was telling him why she didn't fear death and she was talking about her faith in the, 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 God, the scripture and her, his faith in Jesus Christ. And when, and when she got done with a pretty long story about how she came to faith, why she believed in it, uh, what, what she knew about God and his intention for her. And so when she came to the end of it, she asked him, said, what do you believe? And he realized he had not really thought about it. He had, Dr. Dallas Willard calls this irresponsible belief. He was an atheist just because he was an atheist. He didn't really know why. He didn't know why he didn't believe in God. So he began to examine. So this is crazy. Everybody has a different path to, to the Lord. He began to examine the scientific evidence that would cause you to believe that, you, that there had to be a creator. And the more he examined the human DNA, the more he go, there is no way this is an accident. There is no way. And he began to slowly over time investigate the scriptures. He went and talked to pastors that he knew, asked them questions he didn't understand, and he began an investigation. Now, I didn't come to Jesus that way. I got smacked in the face by the Holy Ghost. I didn't have all of these questions that I had to be answered. I just knew I'd had a real encounter with God and that, and that uh, I, I, had to, I had to have him in my life. And so, 
And so he, over, over the course of several years, what brought this man to Christ was science. The science. Being truthful about what you... But he said an atheist argument makes no sense. Dr. Dallas Willard said, if you're going to be an atheist, you're going to have to be extremely diligent to protect your ignorance. Because there is no, there's nothing in this book that doesn't reconcile itself with science. All of the early scientists, John Newton, Galileo, all of, the, all of the old historics, they were all devout Christians. John Newton had the word memorized. He was convinced there was some sort of a hidden code. That's where the Bible code came from. He was convinced there was a hidden code in, in the word. It was, that it was that it had meaning on multiple levels. And, and he's the guy that discovered gravity. So, so, so only after about the, the Enlightenment era, whenever... Whenever a, a David Hume and a Scottish scientist and others begin to say they were atheists and they decided they didn't believe in God and they decided that science and, 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 and a belief in God was irreconcilable, the truth of the matter is the really, in, the really uh, uh, scientists that have real integrity and honesty and have actually thought about the question, there's no way you can be an atheist and be a really good scientist. Isn't that fascinating? Dr. Collins is one of the most famous scientists in the whole world. And he has debated atheists and all of that. They can't, they can't hold a light to him. My point in all of this is everybody has a different path to get to Jesus. But believing, but this is an important point. Believing in God does not make you a disciple of Christ. Believing in God does not make you a disciple of Christ. You have to believe in God first, but then you have to advance from there and decide that you want to, you want to learn about the teachings of Jesus. And you're going to have to decide in your, in your spiritual growth, you need to decide what does Matthew 7, uh, 13 and 14 mean? Enter by the narrow gate. For, while, uh, for wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are that go in by it. Go in where? Where are they going into? He said if it leads to destruction, they can't be going into heaven, can they? This has been a real <laughs> search for me to figure out going into where. Where does the broad path, where does, that, where does that taking us? And I believe that it's taking us into a false sense of security. In other words, what am I saying here? I think what Jesus is trying to say here, that you cannot have claim to heaven. It's, this barcode theology won't work. A barcode theology, you know, you can go to Walmart and you can take a, barcode off a champagne bottle and, and you can stick it on a sack of dog food and when you run it by the scanner, the scanner thinks it's champagne. Are you really telling me that you can live like hell your whole life but because you were a kid and you answered one invitation one time and you supposedly got saved that some kind of a spiritual barcode was slapped on you and when they scan you when you get to heaven the angels will think you're a saint. That's what we're teaching. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous theology. He says that, that the narrow gate, the narrow path, is the important path and few there are that find it. Many end go into the belief that they're okay, and the reality is they just thought they got a fire insurance. It's a fire insurance theology. In other words, I'm planning on living for the devil, but I really want to just go be, get saved so I can get my ticket punched. So, hey, things don't work out. If I get drunk, I get killed. Come on, you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm... 
I'm not pussyfooting around here. I'm telling you the truth. And I've seen it. I've seen people come to the altar, get saved, and go right back into that other life like it was absolutely, and not, and not one. And so this is my fundamental, fundamental belief. If there is no change, there is no salvation. They have to, and look, they need patience and help. They can't, they can't just divorce themselves from that sinful. They've been 40 years, some of them, you know, learning how to sin well. They're not going to just automatically become saints. It takes time, but they have to have conviction. So what I look for, it says that he said the Holy Spirit's given to convict us, not condemn us, to convict us. So once they receive the Holy Spirit, guess what? They can't do the old things like they did. You know, I used to cuss like a sailor. Still can if I get a horse kicks me or something. But, but I, I just cussed my language, I, every other word, you know, I mean, I, would, I, got, I lost my temper. Every other word was a cuss word. You know what? Right after I got saved, I still cussed all the time, but it bothered me this time. See, that's the difference. I had to learn. I had to clean my mouth up because my mouth was a reflection of what was on the inside. And I had to begin to, when, if I would change the inside, my mouth would, would, would begin to change with it. Come on, somebody. And so, and so what I'm looking for, I'm not looking for perfection. I'm not looking for a guy to come up here and, and receive Jesus and walk out of there and not ever say another cuss word again. That's, that's ridiculously naive. But I want him to feel conviction now about his sin. Come on. And then I want to be there to help him, hold him by hand, pat it, and say it's going to be okay. But you've got to learn to think different. You've got to learn to act different. You have to learn to... This is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that transformative thing. It's called the narrow path. The narrow path is about a penitent heart that's not afraid to repent and move on. It's about total commitment to truth, which will set you free. It's a refusal to compromise. The, the church is compromised on the Word of God to try to make it culturally relevant. What a huge mistake that is. It's about, it's, it's about the path of the remnant church is that it's totally committed to the Word, and the Word is timeless. The Word is timeless. Listen. Dr. Robert Jordan Peterson, he's one of a great psychologist of our time. He said, biblical stories are unequivocal truths about life and about being that have come to us through the mist of time. And he's not even a churchgoer. But he recognizes through his practice of psychology that people have deep, deep problems that are addressed through the scripture. And he went on a tour of the world and he started teaching Genesis to college students from a purely metaphorical point of view. He's not trying to convert you. You don't got to join the church. You don't got anything. But what exactly did God mean when he told Abraham to get out of his father's house? There's a lot of kids that age that need to hear. They need to get out of their father and mother's house. He was saying, you cannot live your life if you keep trying to stay protected from the chaos. That what God called Abraham to do was to embrace the chaos and trust him to bring him through it. And he taught this, and he, and he, and he had a hundred and 50,000 some odd college age kids came to his meetings around the world. He was in, I think, I think he was in like 30 or 40 different meetings around the world. And they packed the house because he was showing them how the Bible is still relevant. It's timeless. It's about the human heart, which has not changed since the days of Adam. And there is so much wisdom in there that if you'll embrace it and live by it, it will make you better and make your life better. Golly, that might work as a preaching technology, their approach, huh? And he never, ever mentioned the word about church. He never mentioned that. He said, this, these are truths. 
And you can not believe them if you want to, but it's still, you're going to wreck your life. It's going to slap you in the face sooner or later. And so my point is, is that, and he was, listen, he was a doctor of, of, of psychology that taught at Harvard University, and they threw him completely out of the university system because he was teaching students that the Bible is still relevant and that there are deep, deep metaphorical truths in there that you need to learn to apply to your life. And they ran him out of the unit, but it didn't make any difference because he's got something like 50 million YouTube He's one of the biggest YouTube channels in the whole system. Young people from around the world are following him because he's giving them answers to their problems. And I think it's an indictment against the university system that they cast him out because he wouldn't embrace their godlessness and their atheism. Amen? So... He examined the narrow path from a purely psychological point of view. It's better, generally speaking, if you don't sin. Come on, and look, I've sinned, I've sinned a bunch. I'm just telling you it worked better for me when I didn't. <laughs> That's all I have to say on that. So we can conclude the message. That's it, basically. It's better if you don't sin. Life is better. You're better. Everybody around you is better if you don't sin. But you can sin if you want to. It's just there comes a price sooner or later. It does bring death sooner or later. It'll bring death in your relationships and everything else. So, Jesus makes this other alarming statement in Matthew 21, 7, 7, 21 and 22. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. But he who does the will of my Father. Well, he says, many have come in that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we done, not done many wonders in your name? We've been doing the work, God. We've been doing the work. And then you come here and you, won't, you deny us access into heaven because you said we weren't doing the will of our Father. How many of you have ever known any, any self-centered ministers where it was about them and their gift? And this is a crazy thing. Listen, the gifts are given without recall. It says in Romans chapter 11, 9, they're given without repentance. And so, so you can be following God and you can be praying on your knees every day and you can be searching for that truth and God can impart a gift to you and he'll never recall that gift. The callings, I tell ministers all the time, they say, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to quit ministry. I said, you can't. You can't quit. The calling is irrevocable. If you, can't, if you go out there and quit, when you don't know what, you talk about willful disobedience, you have no idea. Look, I wrote a book on this. You have no idea how your life will come unwired if you don't follow the calling. Well, they go, well, I, I'm just sick of it. Well, look, make some changes. But you can't, the, the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. So you can have someone who has the calling on their life, but then they go out and they, and they and so they have the gift. I mean, they lay hands on people. And they get healed, and they prophesy over people, and they do all of that. But when they stand face-to-face for Jesus, he said, man, I don't have any idea who you are. That's a little scary. That's a little scary. They lived a life, he said, of lawlessness. He said, you who have practiced lawlessness, be cast away from me, I know if you're not. So what exactly is he talking about? What is lawlessness? <laughs> Joe Rowe, Brother Joe Rowe, and I, we've seen this in, our, in, our, in the charismatic wing of the Christian church here, especially in the West, in this past season that ended in, at the end of that season. We had a lot of our prophets that got pretty uh, out there, and they made some pretty bold prophecies and predictions.
And they did it in the name of Jesus. And this is what Deuteronomy 18 says. If a prophet makes a prediction it doesn't come to pass, you don't know, no longer do you pay attention to them. It's that simple. But I have a theory about all that. You want to hear it? I don't want prophets to speak into your life or to my life that don't have a pastor. You see, they need some accountability. They need someone who, 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 who looks over them spiritually, that, that looks out for them spiritually, that, that, that loves them and wants their ministry to flourish, but also will, will look them in the face and say, you know what, you need, to, you need to do this different because you are really getting off the reservation here. I will not allow a prophet to come into this, into this sanctuary that does not have a church affiliation and a pastor who watches over their ministry, the fivefold gifts of apostle, evangelist, pastor, teacher, uh, and, 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 and evangelist are all supposed to work together. They're supposed to work together. So, so if there's no accountability, and, and so I believe that that is the definition of lawlessness, is when you have no authority, you have no accountability, you're not accountable to anybody, you're the big shot, you, you come and do all, and I just think it's a very dangerous uh, place for someone to be. And so I want to be very careful and very clear about that. So I really believe that what we're talking about here is we're talking about no spiritual authority in your life. You have practiced without spiritual authority. You have done the things you thought God was calling you to do because you wanted to, and you, you didn't need nobody. You, uh, you, you pray. Jesus told you what to do. I always ask him, I say, who's your spiritual authority? And they go, he goes, Jesus Christ, you know, I know I'm in trouble. That means that, that, that there's nobody between you and Jesus who can call you on the phone and say, Jack, you better get your stuff fixed up because you're off the reservation. Listen, I, I have a spiritual authority. Rocky Bazette, Brother Jim was my spiritual authority. I called him about a lot of things, and he would say, you need to think about that a little bit before you do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, he would help me. He would help me from making big mistakes. Everybody needs, you need, every one of you needs somebody that you're accountable to. You need someone who you know loves you and cares about you, somebody that's for you, not against you, somebody you can trust to tell you the truth about what you think you hear God saying. Someone that can guide you in those times. Because if you, have, if you have an emotional thing happen to you like a death in your family, boy, men, if you lose your wife, do not remarry within the next year. Because you've had a devastating thing happen to you. And you're, and you're not thinking clearly. And you need somebody who you trust who can walk with you and say, look, man, not her, and not now. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? You, just, you need that. We all need that kind of guidance in our life. And I don't care if you're a big-shot prophet or a big-shot apostle. You need somebody to be accountable to. Brother Jim was like, you know, he had, he had a group of apostles that he was accountable to. I told you the story about, you know, he lost his wife, and he was heartbroken. He went into depression. And he went to his, to his apostolic board, and they said, you're depressed. And he said, well, what do I do about it? He said, well, you need, a, you need to remarry. Okay. So he finds this girl from church, been coming to their church, got a big church, 12,000 people, you know. You can find a good one in there somewhere. So he finds her, and he takes her, and he said, well, I found her. And they go, whoa, not that one. She was 20 years younger than him. Not that one. That's not what we're talking about. And here's what he said. So here's what he said. So he lived by spiritual authority. He said, well, you find me one. You find her. So they prayed. Sister Janet is, was, a, was a widower, was, was a widow. He was a widower. So Brother uh, Rod, Par, uh, Rod uh, 
Aguilar said, I believe it's supposed to be Sister Janet. She was from down there in Resort, Louisiana. And so Jim says, okay, when's the ceremony? And, and they said, well, wait a minute. Don't you want to meet her? No, you prayed. You're my spiritual accountability. You prayed. Is this the one? Well, yeah, we think it's the one. Okay, well, when's the ceremony? That's the way. And that's the way he lived. And you know what? They got married. They came up. They introduced them. They planned the wedding. They got married. And they were happily married for 20, so 26 years. They were made for each other. She, they were exact opposites. She was strong in the areas. He was weak. He was weak in the, uh, strong in the areas. She was weak. They were made for each other. They had a tremendous relationship. Jim Clark lived by the principle of spiritual authority. He was in authority, but he lived by that. He would not tolerate lawlessness from me or anybody else. You had to be accountable to somebody. Amen? I had taught that story in here one time, and I had a widow that was going to church here. She met me after church. She said, you got two weeks. <laughs> Find me a man in two weeks. I go, wait a minute. That wasn't what I was trying to say. She said, I don't care. Does it work or not? Did you mean it when you preached it or did you not? You remember that? She found one. So I got off the hook on that. Hallelujah. So what is the law exactly? So, so what is the law? He said, you're, you practice lawlessness. The law is basically the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is what is referred to as the law. Man, what's that got to do with us? In Galatians 3, 24 and 25, Paul says, Therefore the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And after faith has come, we have no need of a tutor. And so basically the law directs you to the deal. You're not righteous. You think you're righteous, but you're not. You, you have broken some of the commandments that are in that expanse of, 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 of literature, and you need a Savior. That's what it's designed to do. The word for sin is, is actually an archery term. It's harmatia. What it means is it's like the target. So, so when you sin in the Greek, that's the Greek for, for sin. So when you sin means that you miss the target. How many of you hit the target every time you aim? What archer, what archer would quit because he missed the target one time? That's ridiculous. You, you change. You fix your aim. You do it differently. Metaneo, repent. The Greek word metaneo, it means to think differently. You say, you know what, that didn't work. God didn't want that done that way. I got to do that a different way. You don't beat yourself up. You just say, I'm going to do it differently. Come on, somebody. So it's about, it's about changing your aim and hitting the target next time. This is all this is about. It's what I want you to, but Jesus never gave you a pass on that. He never said, no, you just keep doing it the way you've been doing it. He never said that. He wants you to change. He wants that transformation. He wants you to get better and better at hitting the target every time. But he knows you're going to miss it a bunch. He's good. Come, repent. Let the, his blood cleanse and forgive, and let's do it again. Let's try again. I missed that relationship. Well, okay. Well, that doesn't mean you're not ever going to have any relationships in your life. What it means is you've got to do it differently. Come on. This is the Christians, the Christian, the basic Christian tenet about sin is that you, you have to constantly refine your aim and get better and better. So what did Jesus actually have to say about then the law part? Here's what he said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. This will blow your mind. He said, don't think that I came to destroy it. I didn't come to destroy it. So you see the, the, the tension between law and grace. So you go to some churches and what you, is the law is no longer relevant to you. It means nothing. It, it means nothing to you. You're living in grace. And you are. You're saved by grace. But the law should be a target that you become better and better at hitting. Come on, somebody. That's what the law is for. It's to say, what is, so what is perfection? 
What's the definition of perfection? What the law does is it shows you what perfection is. And so you go, well, I'm not like that now, but I would like to be more like that. And so you keep working on it. That's why the law is relevant. That's why it's still in your Bible is you need to understand what God is saying. Well, that mean I can't eat bacon? Listen, there are a lot of laws in that volume, the Pentateuch, that are about hygiene. And if you lived when they lived, have any of you seen a, a wild hog and what a wild hog eats? I'm not eating a wild hog. I've seen what a wild hog eats. So there's, there's so much of that. You know, well, what about all that washing stuff? How many of you know it's still a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Can we get an agreement on that? Okay, well, let's give the Lord a break on this whole washing festival thing because he's trying to get you in the habit of washing before you eat. These are simple things here in the law. What are they doing in there? How about this one? Don't make a garment wear a garment that's both wool and linen. What the heck has that got to do? You know what that means? Don't be double-minded. And maintain the proper order in your life. Listen, it's either winter or it's summer. It can't be both. Well, it can't be in the Texas panhandle, I guess. Maybe we get an exemption on that, hallelujah. So I guess if you take a garment that's wool when you're wearing linen, you know, that shows you're probably from the Texas panhandle. But you don't mix it. And he said, let every livestock breed with their kind. You don't, you, you have respect for the natural order of things. That's what that passage is trying to tell you. Amen? That's still an important attribute for a Christian. Jesus did that. Don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, till heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or tittle, not one I or cross T will by any means pass away from the law. The law is in place. It's the way it is. It was the way he created the universe. And, 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 and for God's moral laws to be, to be rescinded, you would have to, you know, that's like saying that he's going to rescind the law of gravity, which is one of his physical laws. That's not going to happen. If it does happen, we're all in big trouble. Because it's how the universe operates. Come on, somebody. It's how your relationships are supposed to operate. The loss forever. He didn't come to destroy it. In verse 19, he says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of the... Now, this is crazy. Listen to this. Now. Therefore, one, of the, one who breaks one of the least of these commandments... Now, he's talking about the Pentateuch. And teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to make heaven, but you're going to be a street sweeper because you told the people that law, the law has no bearing on their life. That's exactly... Listen to me. God's laws are about principles of success. They're about concepts of how to live and to be extremely successful in your life. So if you tell somebody that the law has no bearing on your life, it's not important. It's like telling them to get up on this roof and just jump off. Because the law of gravity is the figment of John Newton's imagination. Whether you believe the law or not is irrelevant. It guides your life. It's the way things are. And it's better generally if you don't jump off tall buildings and expect not to fall because you believe the law of gravity doesn't apply to you. This is what people are doing when they teach the moral laws of God don't apply to you because you're an atheist. The moral laws of God apply to everybody. They apply to everybody. Why wouldn't you? And Jesus is saying here that if you teach people to ignore the principles of success that God laid out in the beginning, of, you've done them a great disservice. You're going to be, and you believed in me, and you're going to be in heaven but you're going to be a nobody. This is, listen, this is the part that I like. But whoever does and teaches the laws, that the laws are important, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Both get into heaven. One's a street sweeper. The other one's a prince. 
Which one do you want to do? You want to learn the law? You want to learn about the law? How it applies to your life? You're not, you're not going to get saved by the law. You got saved by the blood of Christ. But the Ten Commandments are ten really good ideas. They're really good ways to live. You should be able to quote them. They're the basis of all law in the United States of America. All laws can trace their origins back to the Ten Commandments. That's why you have them hanging in the courthouse in the Supreme Court. They're the basis of all laws. Why would you want to tear that down and throw it away? Why would you want to cancel that? It's who you are. It's what our nation is about. Come on, somebody. <clears throat> and then in Matthew 13 and 52, he says this. Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe, scribe is someone who is an expert on the law, okay? Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, the treasure of his things, things new and old. So basically, Jesus is saying that if you're really skilled with the kingdom of heaven, you really are a good student of the kingdom of heaven, you're skilled at bringing the old and new covenants together. You understand how they integrate. You understand how they integrate and how important they are. So there's a balance between grace and truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace. You know, cheap grace wins is, well, let me read you his definition. Cheap grace is grace that bestow, we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. And grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. When we tell people that you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You are forgiven, but you need to repent. Can I get a witness out of somebody? It's okay. You messed up, but you need to repent. What did Jesus tell the woman that was caught red-handed in the act of adultery? And she, they drug him up there, and they were going to stone her up before him. and said, what do you say? We caught her red-handed in the act of adultery. What do you say about her? And Jesus said, let him who's not committed any sin cast the first stone. And then he began to write something in the sand. I think it was the names of the accusers that had probably been involved in a relationship with this gal. I'm not sure, but I bet that's what it was. And they knew that he knew. And they dropped the rocks and they ran. Then he said to her, what did he say to her? Now you go and sin no more. Repent. You're forgiven, but you need to repent. Amen? When you, when you lose the act of repentance and you lose the definition of what sin is, that's what happens when you lose the law. So, somehow or another, you have to make the migration from sinner saved by grace to a son or a daughter of the king. You can't stay a sinner saved by grace forever. I, am a, I was a sinner saved by grace, but my expectation and Jesus' expectation of me is a little higher than that now. Because I'm supposed to have followed, my, followed him and devoted my life to learning to do the things that he does and, to learn, and learning how to teach the things that he teaches. I'm supposed to, I've become a son. Come on, somebody. God wants you to not stay in that sinner saved by grace mode. He wants you to move up and be promoted. Now you're a son or a daughter of the king. You're a princess or a prince. That's what that means. It's because you understand how to integrate the law and integrate grace and how they both are important. In the process. You need both grace and both truth. In John 1.17 it says. Through the, law, the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. All law. All truth and no grace. Is out of balance. 
and it's detrimental. If you just go up to one of your brothers and tell him what all is wrong with him, it may be truth, but it's not going to help him any. You need to balance. You see, you, and all grace and no truth is no good either because nobody's repenting of anything. Come on, somebody. It's all about love. Jesus loves you. Yeah, he loves you, but he died so you could get stuff, stuff fixed. So you could begin to get your life back in balance where you're living on grace, but you understand the importance of truth in your life. And you had to face the truth about yourself because that's what will set you free. It's not Jesus that sets you free. It's the truth. Abide in my word. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Amen. This is complicated stuff. So the word we have about the compromising church from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 4. The Lord said to the compromising church, he said, her prophets and priests... Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people, and her priests have polluted my sanctuary, and they have done violence to the law. They have taught that the laws of God are irrelevant. They disregard truth. And they're not going to be able to help anybody with life in general, and that's why people are leaving that church in droves. That's the dying church. But remember what the Lord said about you. You who, who want to apply truth to your life, that want to repent, you want to do better. You want to hit the mark. You keep trying. You miss, but you're going to try again. Here's what he said about them in Zephaniah. He said, the Lord your God is in your midst, and he's mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Not because you're perfect. See, we have the law. When I say law, right away you go, I've got to be perfect. No. The law just tells you how bad you are. It just tells you how bad you've missed it. Are you completely, are you, one time, I took a pistol I bought out. I was going to learn how to shoot it. You know, I thought I was a pretty good hand with a, with a pistol. And I took it out. I set up my target. And I think I got rifle distance away. I got way, long ways away from it. I shot a whole magazine. I shot a whole deal. I didn't even hit the target. Well, my confidence in my ability and marksmanship eroded pretty fast. Can I get a witness out of somebody? Then somebody said, look, you need to move a little closer. And I moved a little closer, but I could be, listen, in my life, I have missed the whole target. Has anybody else done that besides me? What's Jesus say about that? Learn. Learn and go again and try it again. It's not about beating people up because they've committed sin. It's about helping people to hit the target the next time. That's what we're all about. But if the target is the law. If you don't have the law, you don't have a target. Does this make sense to anybody? Am I the only one in here that's ever wondered about this? Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, number one. And number two, I came to give you the capacity See, I have no hope of ever hitting the target without the Holy Spirit. No hope. In my flesh, I don't have the capacity to do any of that. The targets that I have hit has been strictly because the Holy Spirit took the pistol away from me and said, here's how you shoot it, son. I have to be in control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never lead me away from God's laws and principles. He will always lead me to understand them better and be able to apply them better. You don't do anybody, anybody a service when you tell them that the laws of God are totally irrelevant to their life. You don't do any. You can't be saved by keeping them, but you can sure be successful by learning how to apply them. Amen? Well, I feel better.
Y'all had to listen to this whole thing. Listen, this has been a struggle for me for 25 years. I've been trying, and I've never found any preachers that really, either they're all grace or they're all law. There's nobody in between has learned to me. I haven't found many. I've found a few, but not many that know how to integrate the two together. The mistakes that I've made in my life, I guarantee you that have, that, have, that have cost me dearly, I guarantee you every one of them has been in this book. Every one of them has been in the first five chapters of this book. And I promise you that if I had listened to what the Lord was trying to tell me and I had done it differently, my outcome would be different. Amen? I want you to be successful. So I want to teach you about the law and grace because you need them both. Amen?